KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. The crisis behind a rise in deadly maritime smuggling. It's right here, right now, in our neighborhoods, on our backyard, and we have a moral responsibility to deal with it. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Some public health experts warn lifting mask restrictions is risky. We're likely to see these networks of outbreaks among people who think that these precautions aren't necessary. Plus, San Diego County takes on environmental justice, and Julian was recently named a dark sky community. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. For the second time in a week and the third time this month, a suspected smuggling operation has occurred off the coast of San Diego. Early this morning, eight people were rescued from the waters off of La Jolla, and the San Diego Fire Department has reported one death related to that incident. As these events become more common, there are more questions about why so many people are making the dangerous journey in the first place. Here to discuss the larger issues at play is University of San Diego professor Ev Mead. Ev, welcome. Hi, Jade. Nice to be with you. This morning's incident is the third of its kind this month. Why are we seeing such a marked increase in these kinds of incidents? Well, we've got, what we've got is an overlapping set of crises uh, in a really challenging situation. Uh, on the one hand, we've got a regional uh, refugee crisis in, in Central America, and that, and that we've seen little bits of uh, going back several years now. You could go back to 2014 when we had all the unaccompanied minors for the first time. You can think about the caravans from the fall of 2018, uh, and we're just seeing kind of another wave of that. But on top of that, we've got the crisis caused by the pandemic and the fact that the economic impact of that, while while it seems, seems to have eased here in the United States, it's still really, really acute in Mexico and in Central America. So we have sort of a new driver, um, uh, uh, of migration. And on top of that, we've got some stuff that's very particular to um, uh, specific places in the region. So we've got a series of hurricanes uh, in Central America, and we've got an ongoing security crisis in Mexico that seems to be getting worse rather than better. Uh, and then we've got a whole lot of political uncertainty in the region. So you sort of add all that up together, and we have you know, kind of a classic existing refugee crisis, then we have a more of an economic situation that's forcing people to migrate. So a lot of the single adults we're seeing right now, I think they're much more economic migrants than refugees. And then you have the fact that the border was shut down for a year and you have pent up demand and you have pent up demand in an immigration system that's really overwhelmed to the breaking point. You know, we have 1.3 million pending immigration cases uh, in the United States right now. That means that, you know, the wait for an individual hearing in a lot of places is five years. So if you put all that together, you've got some really desperate people uh, who don't feel like they can wait and very, 
very little opportunity for them to come uh, in a safer way. And as you mentioned, these maritime crossings are incredibly dangerous. Is there any particular reason why someone would attempt to cross by sea as opposed to over the border? I mean, what are the comparative dangers of those two methods? You know, it's 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 hard to show like sort of like a real honest risk analysis, but I think that's actually the point. The point is, if you're a prospective asylum seeker, prospective migrant in Tijuana, you don't actually have the tools to make a rational risk assessment. What you have is a low-level representative of organized crime coming to you and offering you a service. It's as dangerous as crossing on foot in the desert, and, and maybe uh, in some cases more so. I mean, there's a little more luck, I would say, at play uh, in crossing at sea because of the importance of weather conditions. You know, because if you cross in a panga and you happen to make it, it might be a relatively smooth but harrowing voyage. But if the weather goes wrong or an outboard engine goes out and you're in an open boat uh, with no positive flotation out of sight of land uh, on the Pacific Ocean, you're in real trouble. It's important to note that these kinds of events don't come out of a vacuum and that an increase in activity at our borders is the result of everything from regional political instability to policy decisions made here in the United States. In short, what kind of lessons can we learn now to ensure that we're not dealing with similar issues in the years to come? We've got to be less reactive and more proactive. I mean, I think that's the the simple answer. I mean, in a situation like this, we should be declaring a refugee crisis. We should be mobilizing the full resources of FEMA to house and secure people. Uh, The reality is that most of the people who are coming here are either coming seeking our asylum or coming to work. So this is not a threat to the United States. And if we look, continue to look at it through a security framework and we're always worried about apprehending people, that's a really expensive and inefficient way to do it. Uh, we've got to set up some, you know, we need, we need refugee camps in Mexico, frankly. We need positive screening of refugees. We need the ability of people who really feel like they need to flee their home countries to try to get help in a U.S. consulate or embassy abroad or in another third country. Uh, and we need to get together with our regional partners and deal with this for the crisis that it is. You know, the one thing that the pandemic has taught us more than anything else, and it's the lesson we seem not to want to learn, is that we have a common interest. We're in one world. A pandemic, by definition, is something that affects the whole world. This migration is not only related to the pandemic, but it's but it's the other side of the same question. We're part of an integrated world. We cannot wall off this problem. And the seaborne migrants are a great example of that. If you want to live in an interconnected world and click to buy stuff and have it show up at your doorstep. And if you want to have somebody who's going to harvest your vegetables and clean your house and work in your restaurant, and you want to be part of a global civilization, then we have to take care of the people who are on the margins of that. This, the, the one good thing about this, if there's any silver lining, is it shows us that lesson that when we're talking about a refugee crisis, it's not far away on some other continent that, you know, comes up at the end of the news when ITN breaks in to talk about some, some, some place that none of us could find on a map. It's right here, right now, uh, in our neighborhoods, on our backyard, and we have a moral responsibility to deal with it. I've been speaking with University of San Diego Professor Ev Mead. Professor Mead, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Jade. Some of the confusion about the new mask requirements is over. Both the state of California and San Diego County have designated June 15th as the date fully vaccinated Californians can go without a mask in most indoor settings. 
By that time, it's expected that more than half of San Diego's eligible population will be fully vaccinated. But not everyone agrees that the vaccination numbers or demographics are where they need to be to keep everyone safe. Three public health experts write in Voice of San Diego that lifting the mask requirement at this time could result in further risk of infection for the most vulnerable among us. Joining me is one of the authors of that opinion, Rebecca Fielding Miller, a UCSD epidemiologist and assistant professor at UC San Diego School of Medicine's Division of Infectious Disease diseases, and global public health. Rebecca, welcome back to the program. Hi there. Thanks for having me back again. Now, you say that theoretically, you have no argument with fully vaccinated people being able to go without masks, but you say it's not that simple in the real world. What situations don't these new guidelines take into account? Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And I think it's important to be clear that for people who are fully vaccinated, who are two weeks past their second shot if they got Moderna or Pfizer, or their one and done shot if they got Johnson and Johnson, there is a very, very low risk of catching the virus and of passing it on to somebody else. The problem is when we look at who has and has not been vaccinated in San Diego County, there's some real differences by age and by demographics, especially race and ethnicity. And so when these new guidelines basically boil down to an honor code, and we, we want people to you know be um, honest about their vaccination status in public, but we have no way of knowing. And we know that certain behaviors cluster together. People who are most likely to think that they don't need to get vaccinated, that it's not important. Those are the same folks who are gonna think that it's not important to wear a mask and also that it's not important to socially distance. And so we're likely to see these networks of outbreaks among people who think that these um, precautions aren't necessary. And then it's also potentially more likely for that infection to spread to groups of people who haven't had the opportunity to get vaccinated yet. Now, there is a hope that sort of the bonus of being able to take your mask off will inspire more people to get vaccinated. Do you think that's the case? You know, I I can never rule it out. I'm sure there are a couple of people who maybe if they were teetering, um, this would push them over. But I think if, you know, the opportunity to not get COVID-19 and spread it um, to the people around you hasn't big enough been a big enough incentive. If um, stickers and donuts haven't been a big enough incentive, then this, um, I, I don't see the opportunity to take your mask off as a real incentive, especially if there's not going to be a check, if you can just take it off anyway, and nobody will ever know. Cal OSHA is considering relaxing masks and social distancing requirements for fully vaccinated workers. So do you think that's also opening the door to more problems? I worry about workers in particular. You know, a a good friend of mine manages a CVS and it's not his job to have to arbitrate if somebody is vaccinated or not, if somebody comes in without a mask into his place of business. It's unclear how providers, um, employers would enforce vaccination status. We don't have a universal vaccine registry to check that against. And I worry that once again, people who are sort of at the highest risk are going to face the most harm from this. You know, the overall percentages of people who've gotten vaccinated is looking pretty good. But tell us more about what you say those numbers don't tell us, that that is the whole story about communities that are being left behind. 
Yeah, so San Diego County and the state of California really have done an amazing job. When we look at the numbers, I think as of today, about 65% of eligible San Diegans have gotten at least one shot. So I, I do think it's reasonable that we will get to that 70% mark pretty soon. But if we look at the data and we look at how different groups by race ethnicity have gotten vaccinated, we can see that only 31% of African-American San Diegans 12 and over have gotten vaccinated compared to 52% of white San Diego residents. Um, we can see there's a really big gap between um, vaccine uptake in folks who identify as Native American. And so even though in the aggregate, these numbers are small. I think only about 3% of the population is African-American in San Diego. Those 3% of people are still important. And we want to make sure that we're not leaving anybody behind as we move forward as a society. So even though we see good numbers of fully vaccinated people, if unvaccinated people also decide to take off their masks, what kinds of risks are we looking at? One of the biggest concerns is we know that there's a lot of these variants, they're called variants of concern. So this one that we saw first in the UK, B117, that now makes up about 60% of cases in San Diego. This variant that we're seeing associated with outbreaks in India, um, uh, the variant we've seen first identified in South Africa. And we know that some of these are a little bit better at evading the antibodies that the vaccine makes. And so the more opportunities the virus has to replicate, the more opportunities it has to replicate in a way that can help it evade the vaccines. And so if there are clusters of people spending time together um, who are unvaccinated, who are um, sort of uh, helping the virus replicate within themselves, that provides more opportunity for these variants to come about that could potentially escape the vaccine for everybody and put us back at the beginning again. You wrote this piece in Voice of San Diego with two other public health colleagues. Do you all intend to keep your masks on in indoor settings after June 15th? I, I certainly do, yeah, in public and for a couple of reasons. One, you know, I've gotten my vaccine, um, my husband has gotten his vaccine, but I have a three-year-old um, and she is not fully vaccinated. She's three, she goes to childcare. Um, the children she spends time with are not fully vaccinated. And while it's a very, very, very small chance, there is still a chance that um, I could catch the virus and I could potentially pass it on to her um, or to the kids in her daycare. And I want nothing to do with that. Um, and also, like I said, it's not retail staff or barista's job to know if I'm vaccinated or not. And if, you know, me having to wear a mask for an extra five minutes helps somebody else feel a little bit less afraid about their own vulnerability or the vulnerability of somebody they care about, then that's a really easy choice to make for me. I've been speaking with UCSD epidemiologist Rebecca Fielding Miller. Rebecca, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. 
Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heidman. The new members of the San Diego County Board of Supervisors continue to take county government in new directions. On Wednesday, the board voted unanimously to create an Office of Climate and Environmental Justice. Its mission is to consider the impact of climate change and pollution on every community in San Diego. Future actions by the board on environmental issues will be informed by input from the new office. And joining me is San Diego County Supervisor Nora Vargas. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, I believe you proposed the creation of this new office. Why did you do that? Yes, I did. Uh, you know, for too long, I believe nonprofit organizations, particularly in South County, have been taking the lead on these issues related to environmental justice in our communities. And organizations like the Environmental Health Coalition and Casa Familiar have been doing extensive work to understand and, and, and mitigate the problems of, of um, the contamination and pollution in our communities. And I think it's time uh, now more than ever for our government to actually take responsibility and and take the lead on these issues. And so the best way to do that is to ensure that we have an office that's dedicated right to environmental and climate justice. What I keep saying is that your zip code should not determine your health and well-being. And so we know that everyone in the county of San Diego has a right to clean air, safe drinking water, and access to open spaces. And it is our responsibility as a county to take that lead. And that's exactly what this office will do. While you all were considering this, what examples did the board hear about the impact of pollution on affected communities? Particularly what has happened in communities of north of El Cajon, north of Lemon Grove, Spring Valley, and Sweetwater communities, uh, you know, those communities have been identified by our, you know, general plan as having higher exposure to industrial and hazardous waste facilities and higher levels of air pollution. And so, uh, this is a this is a countywide problem, right? We ha- we know from the American Lung Association uh, and their reports that in Oceanside, more than you know, four in one of people uh, actually are living where pollution levels frequently make the air too dangerous to breathe. And in my district, in Barrio Logan and National City, our communities are you know ranking top five percent for diesel air pollution in this state, and and children's asthma hospitalization rates are three times more than the county average. You know, and and the thing about it is we are very proud of being a border community, right? Um, And we talk about it all the time. But as a result of that, in San Isidro, our residents um, have been exposed to pollution from vehicles that wait for hours at the port of entry. And so um, we need to be able to take all of these things into account in this office will be able to really look at things from a perspective of, you know, gathering data, using data to make decisions, really investing, um, you know, through programs and services from a less lens of environmental justice, and really investing in our communities that for too long have been doing the work. What I'm looking for is systemic change in our county, right? This shouldn't be about one supervisor and one vote. This is about long-term systemic change for communities that have been impacted for way too long. Well, so specifically, will the new Environmental Justice Office, will it do assessments of impacts on poor communities? Will it be doing its own pollution studies? What will it be doing? 
Yeah, so the, it's the Environmental and Climate Justice uh, Office. And so, for instance, we will look at data and look at the cumulative impacts of emissions and toxins and the, community, the community's public health and well-being. We're going to look at the county programs through the lens of environmental justice and be very specific, right, um, when we bring in communities and hear their concerns and make sure that we're implementing policy that reduces exposure, like, for instance, to pollution. The office is also going to be able to work with our community partners to be able to do groundbreaking work in the field of advocacy. I think, you know, us coming together with our community partners to advocate at the federal and state level to bring additional resources into our communities is going to be very powerful. You know, the work that, that I am leading at the county is really looking at everything from a public health care perspective. And, and the environment and climate um, are really at the core of, of how we look at the work that we're doing as we're moving forward. You know, I want to take up something you were saying before about the the change, the shift that's taking place at the county. Many people say this new office for climate and environmental justice would never have been approved under previous boards of supervisors. How would you describe the shift that's taking place on the priorities of the board of supervisors? Well, I always say to folks, right, representation matters is not just a hashtag. What we bring to the table is really when you when you have you know being as someone who is binational, someone who grew up in this community, um, who has worked uh, you know and and partnered with communities on both sides of the border, and in our region, right? I've been on the ground doing this work with organizations like the Environmental Health Coalition for decades and Casa Familiar. What we what happens is we bring a different perspective, right? And together as a board, we're able to elevate. Um, issues that may have not been elevated by folks who have not, you know, have have had these lived experiences. And so I think that's what's the, the power of having folks who are from the community represent us and who understand the needs of the community. And in partnership with community, we are able to bring these initiatives forward that are going to have a long-term um, impact uh, for the well-being of our communities. And I think that's, that's the big difference, right, that we are um, bringing up these initiatives that otherwise uh, would have never been, you know, heard of because the folks who were on the board before might not have might not have been exposed or have had those experiences in the past. I've been speaking with San Diego County Supervisor Nora Vargas. Thank you so much for taking the time out. Thank you. Women lost one million more jobs than men last year. In fact, women were so disproportionately affected by job loss during the pandemic, it was called the she-session. As catchy as the term may be, it highlights all the ways inequality in the workforce impacts women. Shana Gross is vice president of client services at San Diego Workforce Partnership. She wrote a recent opinion article in the San Diego Union-Tribune about what it will take for employers to create equity in the workplace and bring women back. She joins us now. Shana, welcome. Thanks for having me. So first, let's dig into the inequalities women face in the workforce and how the pandemic made those worse. Well, I think we can all think of um, friends or family members when, you know, schools shut down, we kind of looked at each other and said, what are we going to do now? And it fell often uh, to women to figure out with their employers what they were going to do. You know, I'm going to stay home and watch my child or I need these flexible hours um, and uh, in addition, you know, I think it's important to recognize that not all women in the workplace are moms. You know, many are. 
Um, but women in general tend to be in um, lower wage frontline jobs that were most impacted by the recession, things like hospitality and retail. Um, and so they were losing their jobs or working jobs on the front lines more exposed to, um, you know, COVID and the things that we were all trying to stay home to avoid. And the U.S. Bureau of Labor of Statistics really paint a, a picture for us. Can you talk about the numbers and what they reveal? Yeah. Well, um, you know, back in December, they came out and said that um, in the last um, month, the women had lost 156,000 jobs while men had gained 16,000. Um, and, you know, that's not to say that men didn't lose jobs, but they gained more. Uh, than they had lost overall. And I just think that that's such a stark uh, contrast to show that women are in the kinds of jobs that were most impacted or that women were most likely to step away from the workforce. And earlier you noted many women in the workforce are balancing the challenges of work and caretaking. What type of adjustments have some women had to make during the pandemic? Well, we know that um, 94% of workers who involuntarily went part-time because of childcare needs were women. Uh, so that's, you know, women having to say, I'm going to step back from my career, from my job, uh, so that I can take care of my family. Or sometimes elder care also, I think, is really important. Um, the other thing that I think women have really been um, challenged with always, but particularly during the pandemic, is something I've been looking a lot into is um, the mental load of motherhood. So all of the um, invisible labor of the thinking and the planning and, you know, even in the most supportive and progressive households where couples split the chores evenly. And I have to say, I'm very lucky to have a supportive spouse and supportive parents. Um, it's the woman who is thinking about, you know, oh, school's going to be closed for a week in June. I need to make plans or Friday is costume day or um, so-and-so's birthday is coming up. And that mental load, I think, on top of all of the mental strain of the pandemic is really um, impacting women much more disproportionately than men. And right now, you know, more people are getting vaccinated. Schools are looking to reopen and so are businesses. It seems like we could soon return to a sense of normal. Um, but as we turn this corner, how do you think the workforce may be changed moving forward? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think return to work is very dependent on school reopenings. Um, and, and we're going to see those uh, continue to be intertwined. I know um, my husband is a teacher and uh, when there's one child that's sick in the classroom, the entire class closes for two weeks. So even though they've gone back to school um, and, you know, they're meeting in person and at any moment, all of a sudden we have to figure out, oh, what does childcare look like for these two weeks? Uh, and I think we're going to need employers to be flexible and to understand um, that transition. I think we also um, have learned that Working at home, um, you know, women are incredible and we're able to juggle a lot of things. And so when people are asking for flexible schedules or um, sometimes predictable schedules is, is what might be more helpful um, or the ability to work from to continue to work from home, we've proven that those are very effective and productive. And we're going to need employers to, to work with us um, and to work with the workforce overall to implement some of these temporary things that we've put in place and make them more permanent. And you say that the she session uh, must be followed by a she 
recovery, in order for the economy to really bounce back, what do you see happening if employers don't get this right? Well, I think we miss the opportunity to have diverse voices at the table. And um, women bring with them a wealth of knowledge and experience and insight. And we can be inadvertently um, sort of, you know, losing that that perspective and that diversity at the table. And, and we know that when women are engaged in the workplace, there is um, more productivity, better product. You know, anytime you have diverse voices at the table or diverse representation, the end product is better um, and, and more representative of the community um, in which you work or the community, in my case, at a nonprofit, the community that we serve. And so I think uh, if we don't pay attention to figuring out ways to get women intentionally back to the workplace, uh, we'll really be missing out on that voice. I've been speaking with Shana Gross, Vice President of Client Services at San Diego Workforce Partnership. Shana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Since the pandemic began, workers in the grocery delivery business have been trying to organize to get more protections and benefits. Workers at the venture capital-backed Bay Area company Imperfect Foods just voted to form a union. But as KQED's Sam Harnett reports, their efforts can't be a model for all on-demand grocery delivery workers. Imperfect Foods has always pitched itself as a company trying to make the world a better place. Want to know an easy way you can stock up on grocery items you won't find anywhere else while supporting a great cause? It's called Imperfect Foods, the grocery delivery service on a mission to build a better, kinder food system. Imperfect Foods started by letting customers purchase produce that's not quite perfect and would otherwise end up donated to food banks or even in the trash. The pitch didn't just attract customers, but also employees like Oakland resident Chris Jasinski. For me, one of the big draws of coming to work for this company in the first place was it's explicitly green mission. Also, he'd be an employee, not a contractor, like grocery delivery workers for Instacart or Amazon-owned Whole Foods. Yeah, it's like one of the good differentiators right out the gate of Imperfect Foods versus other companies. During the pandemic, business has been booming. The company just received another $95 million in venture capital, bringing its total investment up to $229 million. But as the company has grown, so has tensions with workers. They were unorganized. That's what uh, bugged me the most. Jesus Gomez is a delivery worker in Sacramento. Like Jasinski, Gomez voted for the union. He says one of the issues was the way the company started pushing drivers to work Saturdays. The company says Saturdays weren't mandatory, but several drivers I spoke with said it was made clear they were expected to work. We will sometimes have to go to East Bay and SF and work or Merced or Reno. They'll send you over there and, you know, you get like 100 plus boxes. We were getting out late and, uh, we had to be ready to, for the next day. There are other issues, too. Gomez says they didn't get raises or any extra hazard pay. We didn't get not even a dollar more or anything. So that's what was getting me mad and a lot of people that like, you know, we see them growing, but we don't, you know, we don't we don't grow with them. And so about a month ago, employees voted to join the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. It was a tight election. 28 workers in favor, 23 against. The company challenged the results with the National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, which is a common anti-union delay tactic. 
The company declined an interview with KQED, but in a blog post, the CEO wrote, we can and will do better at collaborating directly with our employees and resolving our issues. This is definitely not the first supposedly ethical company that has fought a union drive. It happens all the time. Ruth Milkman is a labor sociologist at the City University of New York. After a month, the NLRB threw out the company's challenge and certified the union. That makes Imperfect Foods an outlier among venture capital-backed grocery delivery companies, where most workers don't even have an option to form a union. That's because Proposition 22 makes it legal for app companies to classify their workers as contractors. Under current law, gig workers, if they're independent contractors or, or even if they're misclassified as independent contractors, they're not covered by the National Labor Relations Act at all. So they actually do not have legally the right to collective bargaining. The way Prop 22 was written, political analysts say it's nearly impossible to overturn. But change could come at the federal level through something called the PRO Act. Oh, it would, it would, it would totally wipe out Prop 22. Nelson Lichtenstein is a professor of labor history at UC Santa Barbara. He says the PRO Act would make it harder for employers to fight union drives. It would also allow contractors to unionize. But because of their razor-thin margin in the Senate, Democrats would need every single senator to support the legislation. And right now, not everyone is on board. But even if the PRO Act doesn't pass, Lichtenstein says what just happened at Imperfect Foods could be helpful for app workers in California who want to form a union. If a group of workers who do the same work, who are defined as employees, unionize, that will have a large impact on on both the, the sort of the impulse to un- for the other workers to, to, to unionize and also in a legal and political uh, realm as well. Biden's Department of Labor has already openly rebuked Proposition 22. And now with Imperfect Foods, it has an example of workers at a venture-backed grocery delivery company who are not only employees, but also have a union. That was KQED's Sam Harnett reporting. Many important events of our lives, like weddings and quinceañeras, were put on hold during the pandemic. And it hit the event industry hard. KPBS reporter Alejandra Rangel talks with some Chula Vista merchants who are eager to get back to work. Along 3rd Avenue in downtown Chula Vista sits a row of restaurants, businesses, and breweries. It's also a go-to spot for people looking to plan a wedding or celebration. These businesses are picking up following a brutal year of pandemic restrictions. From party photographers. There was no business for us. To party bus rental companies. Churches are closed. Restaurants are closed. Dress shops, tuxedo shops, DJs, catering companies. An entire industry completely shut down. It was so sad and I was so scared of losing my business. And this is a family business where my kids help me. Vicky Hernandez is the owner of Illusion Hall. She says the party venue she's been running for a decade was on the verge of bankruptcy. Some people don't know, but I had to take the decision to work as a waiter. Uh, I, I, I never believed that I can do that, but I was trying to find a job. She also took out a $60,000 loan for her business. And when the loans start coming up, I qualify for a loan. And that helped me. That was like my um, key to continue in this business. After a year of canceled events, Hernandez is scheduled to host a string of parties starting this summer. Get ready, mom, because now I am very, very busy because I had 50, almost 50 events waiting. She marked the turnaround with an open house on Sunday, giving clients a feel of what their dream day can look like. 
Angelo Rocha has a tuxedo shop across the street from Illusion Hall. He says the reopening of the party halls is a good sign, as he knows people will be looking for formal wear. It's low, but every day more people coming up, more people coming up. The majority of Rocha's income comes from quinceañeras, a celebration of the girl's 15th birthday. He says 90% of his clients are Latino. Quinceañeras is something for, special for the Spanish people. It's very important to have at that, that kind of party. Rocha says it's loyal customers that are keeping him afloat. Out of 50 events he had scheduled last year, he says only one asked for their money back and the remainder 49 have rescheduled for this year. Most of my customers are old customers. I have a customer from 20 years, 20 years. They come in back, they do some quinceañera. Later on, they come in for the wedding. Later on, they come in for another event. Other store owners aren't as fortunate. Mario Urista, the owner of Mario's Boutique, says he has an entire demographic of clientele he hasn't been able to reach. About 30 to 40 percent of my customers come from Tijuana to look for dresses here. It's a lot of people. Urista says he's had several customers looking for prom dresses. It's an added bonus he wasn't expecting to see this year with the uncertainty of high school proms. As the event industry begins to salvage what's left of this year, Hernandez says she's just grateful to have made it through. Now I, I'm, I'm happy that I didn't stop. I'm happy that I didn't go to bankruptcy, uh, but it's going to take us maybe a year and a half or two years to go back to that area where we was before pandemia. Alexandra Rangel, KPBS News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. As pandemic restrictions ease up, many San Diegans can't wait to get back into the bright nightlife of the city. But for one area of the county, nightlife has gotten darker and a lot more beautiful. The town of Julian was recently named an official dark sky community, just the second one in California after Borrego Springs. After a lengthy preparation, including enacting new outdoor lighting ordinances, Julian received the designation from the International Dark Sky Association. Now, in addition to Julian's traditional rustic charm, visitors can gaze at a new, clearer vision of the heavens. Joining me is Lisa Will. She's physics and astronomy professor at San Diego City College and resident astronomer at the Fleet Science Center. Lisa, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. 
Now, can you try to describe the difference between looking up at the night sky in San Diego with what it looks like in Julian now that it's a dark sky community? When you go outside at night in a large metropolitan area like San Diego, the light pollution washes out the faintest stars in the sky. So if you and I were to go outside tonight, whether cooperating and look up at the sky, we would see um, a couple of dozen, several dozen of the brightest stars in the sky. But we'd be losing out on the fainter details, uh, the Milky Way going across the sky, the fainter stars that build up the constellations. And it's just, it's a very different experience. You're almost overwhelmed by the number of stars there are because we're just not used to seeing that many from a city. And that's what having a designated dark sky community like Julian will make available to people. Now, getting that dark sky designation is quite a process. So what did Julian have to do to get that? Well, Julian hoped to follow in the footsteps of Borrego Springs, which is the other community in California that has their dark sky designation. Um, And they saw what Borrego Springs did, but they had to go even further because it turns out that San Diego County has been kind of lagging behind the times in terms of lighting ordinances. So they had to work with the county to get lighting ordinances approved, but also sometimes fixing light pollution can be kind of simple, like making sure the light is directed where you want it to, Um, changing the color of the lights from the sort of bright blue LED lights that we're all getting used to, to the warmer colors that don't scatter as much in the nighttime sky and cause air glow. So um, that's how they worked to try to make their sky darker. I'm going to ask you just a little bit more about what light pollution how it affects our ability to see the stars, because going out in the city at night, looking up, the sky's beautiful. I mean, it's pretty, you see some stars, but when you go to a dark sky community or you go out some rural place, it's it's a whole different experience, isn't it? It really is. And I think it's a statement about how few people actually get that experience anymore. If you remember, there were several years ago, there was that large power outage over all of Southern California. And I had students, you know, contact me saying, I'd never seen the sky like that. We should schedule a power outage like this once a month. When you go outside at night, uh, light pollution affects your ability to see the sky in a couple of different ways. Uh, First of all, there's just the glare. Uh, Bright lights uh, don't ever let your eyes get dark adapted. Um, And what I mean by that is that your eyes can see better the longer you're outside in the dark. It takes about 15 minutes for your eyes to get truly dark adapted. So if you're in a place with a lot of clutter of lights, your eyes never get truly dark adapted so that you can see the fainter stars in the sky. But the bigger problem in large metropolitan areas like San Diego is um, sky glow, where the uh, lights of the city Uh, the light gets scattered in the air above the city and it causes what we see as light domes in the distance. And so you know how if you're coming into a large city, you can see the sky get brighter in the direction of the city before you ever see any of the the buildings in the city. That's over us all the time in a large metropolitan area. And it, it just makes the fainter stars invisible to us. So we really only see about the couple brightest stars in the sky if you're really truly surrounded by light pollution. Is Julian's dark sky uh, going to help astronomers at Palomar or other observatories? Well, it certainly doesn't hurt. When you're at a observatory and you look out at the horizon, you can see the light domes above cities in the distance. And so any city that makes an effort to 
decrease the light pollution will be a help to the professional observatories in the area. Uh, so in San Diego County, we have uh, Palomar, we have a uh, Mount Laguna Observatory, and any efforts will help that uh, the astronomers at those facilities see the night sky better. And what about amateur sky gazers? Do you expect this will increase visitors to Julian? Well, I certainly hope so, because if you've never had a chance to see a truly dark sky, it's amazing. Most people who live in a city have never seen the Milky Way itself. Studies have shown that up to 99% of people living in the United States don't actually see a truly natural nighttime sky because we all live in cities or close enough to cities that their light pollution is changing the sky that we see. Now, you're the fleet's resident astronomer and are involved with the local astronomy on tap group. Do you foresee holding events in Julian in the future because of this new dark sky designation? Oh, I would love to. And, uh, you know, Julian already has uh, people up there dedicated to bringing astronomy to the public, like with their, uh, their star party that they have done and will continue to do. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to going up there and uh, experiencing the night sky in a way that I can't quite do from here in San Diego. Now, next week, I I believe that there will be a lunar eclipse. Would Julian be a good place to see it? Yes. And so there is a total lunar eclipse on Wednesday, May 26th. Um, It will be visible early in the morning, so it might be hard for some of us. Uh, The totality of the lunar eclipse will be from around 4.11 in the morning till 4.25 in the morning, our time. And it will be partially eclipsed before and after that. So Julian might be a great place to go for this because we've had a lot of marine layer and May Gray uh, here in coastal San Diego. And so if you want a good view of the lunar eclipse, you may need to get away from the coast. So yeah, Julian would be a great place. And do you need to bring a telescope or can you really see things with your naked eye if you're out in that dark sky community? There are so many things that you can see with the naked eye when you're outside and get dark adapted under a truly dark sky. Um, As we're heading into summer, that's when the Milky Way is its brightest, that band of stars that shows the plane of the galaxy in our sky. You can actually pick up some star clusters faintly with the naked eye uh, that you can't see uh, in the city. And so it is completely different. Starlight can be bright enough for you to see by, you know, and that's just not something we ever experience in a city. Now that both Julian and Borrego Springs are official dark sky communities and Anza Borrego Park is a dark sky park, is there any chance we're about to see a whole sort of dark sky region in San Diego County? You know, I would really love that. And and there's uh, not just because of preserving the night sky for all of us to experience. But light pollution is incredibly impactful. It wastes energy because a lot of that light is not necessary. It's not being directed into the places where the light is wanted. Um, It impacts wildlife and um, health. And so I would love to see a greater movement towards understanding light pollution as the problem that it is. I have been speaking with Lisa Will. She's physics and astronomy professor at San Diego City College and resident astronomer at the Fleet Science Center. Lisa, thank you very much. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.